This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey friends, not a lot of time to talk because I've got a guy on the line who loves to talk and uh, deserves to be heard. Uh, Sean David Morton is with us. We're going to talk Area 51 and the Secret Space Program. First, very quickly, let me welcome two new affiliates to the program. WTSL AM 1400 out of Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230 out of Claremont, New Hampshire. Good to have our first two stations out of the great Granite State. All right, Area 51. I had a friend that was driving along uh, Highway 375, uh, just described it as this boring drive in the desert. I say, wait a minute, don't you know where you were? You were near Area 51. He said, what's Area 51? I said, oh, come on, you got to be kidding. I mean, people have been talking about Area 51 for years, wondering whether they're back engineering alien technology there, whether they've got alien uh, dead bodies on ice there. Uh, well, Sean David Morton is with us. He's here to tell us all about it. He's uh, an independent feature film writer, a director, an author, uh, the author of The Sands of Time, which is a, a true story uh, of a gentleman who spent 40 years inside the shadow government. Sean David Morton, how are you? I'm good. We're here in uh, rainy Southern California. Here, you're getting snowed in up in Canada. We got a, a wallop, yes, but uh, nothing, nothing like uh, I remember when I was a kid. However, uh, I guess but I think we're getting soft in our old age. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I, I also I'm thrilled to have you with me, but I'm also uh, thrilled that you um, were able to go before our, uh, our TV cameras and do a couple of episodes of the uh, the conspiracy show television program. So uh, in September of this year, people are going to have a chance to see you on the show talking about the Bilderbergs and Area 51, both of which we'll touch on uh, here tonight, and and also Forbidden Archaeology. The interesting thing, though, about Area 51 and the Bilderbergs, uh, and who knows, uh, perhaps uh, to a certain extent, sort of the the hidden origins of mankind, these things all sort of nicely dovetail. And uh, when I think of Area 51, I think, and also the public, it's become, uh, in our imagination, it's become this repository for everything that we'd like to know but don't know. It's this repository of all the great secrets that we suspect are being hid from us by this elite group. But as I mentioned in the introduction, you're really uh, one of the key people who brought Area 51 into the public consciousness. Yes. How did did you uh, begin to investigate this secret base? 
Uh, I knew about it from uh, when I was a kid, actually, because I grew up with with astronauts. I grew up with. Uh, I have godfathers that have walked on the moon. My uh, uh, my dad was the public relations director for TRW, uh, which was then bought by Northrop uh, here in uh, in Southern California, and he also had a uh, he had a nightclub, actually, a, a private club just for the astronauts and people in the aerospace industry that was co-founded by him and uh, Wally Shira and Walter Cronkite, who was also a very good friend of the family, called the uh, called Jerry Morton's International Turtle. Club, which I'd thought for a while to kind of start up and make it more for you know, conspiracy people that we would all belong to the Turtle Club, which is the same thing that these guys belong to. But uh, you know, the people that I grew up with that were just around the house all the time were people like uh, Gus Grissom, who was like a second dad to me. Uh, you know, uh, Ed White, uh, Chaffee, uh, Don Isley, Gordon Cooper married my mom's best friend. Uh, so all these guys, uh, you know, who who everybody believed were on the cutting edge of the space program, all knew that there was something else that was going on. All knew that Gus Grissom used to say, well, you know, we're just spam in a can and we're just monkeys they send up there. And uh, the military was spending something like 10 times more money than the than the secret space program that was happening at the same time. And, uh, you know, so when I was a kid, I'd heard rumblings of it. Just to give you the brief progression, I'd heard rumblings of, and, and back then it was called the Docktown Strip, I believe, or just, uh, or just Groom Lake. It, it 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 had the map classification of Area 51, and now the people on the inside actually just call it 5-1, and they usually spell it out as you know five, you know F I V E dash you know O N E, and uh, so then it was it was interesting because then I heard about it again. It cropped up in the uh, in the mid '80s when I was good friends with a man by the name of Danny Casalero, and Danny Casalero wrote for a computer magazine here in uh, in the South Bay of Southern California, in Redondo Beach, called Computer Times, and uh, he and I did some work to uncover a, a top secret uh, computer program that later became known as Promise, which uh, was developed by the Inslaw Corporation by a man by the name of Bill Hamilton. Promise stands for uh, Prosecutor's uh, Office Ma- Management Information Systems, and it was designed for the Justice Department to track you know, criminals through the, the, the gigantic Byzantine labyrinth-like morass that is the, the, the federal criminal justice system. So Promise was designed to actually crack into any computer system or structure, read them with kind of a fuzzy logic program and, uh, and and create bubbles of data that would then actually then rise up to the top so that they, uh, an attorney general could put a case together. Well, specifically, Bill Hamilton did ne- never wanted this used as uh, in the in the public realm. He never wanted it used on the public or for military applications because with a program like that, you could track anything. You can track submarines. You can track people. You know, whatever. So for whatever reason, this what Danny called the octopus. Um, seemed to then be absorbed by Area 51 and seemed to be used as a... Because uh, then you get into the weird computer stuff that was going on at 5.1 and uh, into a supercomputer that they called the Beast, which stands for Battle Engagement Arena Simulation and Tracking. And, uh, uh, you know, prototypes for how you would then track troops in the field where, you know, which has some very, very Machiavellian and, and you know, like all the bad parts of the end of the Book of Revelation kind of uh, biblical feel to it because the... Uh, what the system has become is you have you know what's known as the beast computer, which can then be underground, which uh, can then be operated by a general or a single individual that usually has uh, literally has these uh, 
like suction cup transmitters that actually go on the frontal lobe of the brain, so you can actually directly telepathically interact with the computer itself, which kind of look like horns, if you will. Uh-huh. And then that goes out to uh, how you track uh, how you track men in the field and equipment, because they're then tagged with an RFID chip that they call a MARC, M-A-R-C-C, which is Multiple Automated Readout Computer Chip. So you literally have the mark of the beast, where a general can sit there and say, oh, we've got this many divisions and so many platoons and you know this type of gun and that sort of tank and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Danny investigating the Inslaw scandal because the Reagan administration stole the computer system. And the only reason they found out about it was that Inslaw was contacted by Canada. And the Canadians wanted a copy of the uh, of of the Promise software uh, in French for the Quebec police, and they were like, "Well, how'd you get this thing?" And they realized that the Reagan administration had stole it, and then you know, and then they did all kinds of bad things to Bill Hamilton. You know, they like they always do. They accused him of being like a thief and a child molester and you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So. All this leading up in Area 51, Danny Casalero then is murdered. He actually goes to a lead in Michigan, and he's, you know, and, they, and the police called it a suicide, but his arm was slashed like nine times. He had a rubber tube wrapped around his neck, and he was beaten with a baseball bat, so it's a pretty bad suicide. And I warned him not to go at the time. So this then leads into, so here I've known about Area 51 most of my life from back when it was the Docktown Strip, from then it was, you know, Groom Lake. Gordon Cooper, actually, I interviewed uh, uh, for the first time where Gordon talked about how he was out at Area 51 and actually saw a uh, uh, some kind of extraterrestrial-looking ship actually land and, uh, you know, had some kind of interaction with it. And, you know, this is Gordon Cooper. This is one of the – this is the fastest man alive, the last American to go into space alone. And uh, we got Gordon to talk about all kinds of stuff because, you know, I'd known him all my life. He was my friend. So uh, – so 1990, I'm hired to – and this is kind of the progression. 1989, I go out with a team of scientists, including Fred Bell. Television producer Joe Joe Randazzo, Paul Shepard, and a group of people, and we ultrasound the Dulce Archuleta Mesa. There was a controversy at the time in the UFO field from a guy by the name of Bill Moore, who talked about uh, because Dulce is really key to a lot of the things that are sort of going on in the in the black world, black world or black ops movement because it was one of the underground bases or facilities where not only were we actively involved with extraterrestrials, but had actually fought two major wars or conflicts with this particular bunch of ETs, excuse me, this particular bunch of ETs at the Mesa. The first one, I think, was in like 77, and the next one was under the Reagan administration somewhere around uh, 84, 85. And uh, computer scientist Jim Delatoso came up with a, uh, uh, this is 89, December of 89, mind you, came up with a way to ultrasound the mountain. And actually use what what were called what was called data tabling at that time to take slices of sonic information and then put it all together like a loaf of bread to actually see what was in the mountain. So we ultrasound the mesa in December of '89, and uh, we prove beyond a shadow of doubt that there's a base, that there is a, that there's a, a huge dome at the top, that it goes down about ten levels or so, that there's cavernous areas underneath, that there are jet tubes or or train systems that actually interconnect the base to you know God knows where other places like you know Kirtland and New Mexico and, you know, Area 51 and Edwards Air Force Base and Dallas and Nevada. And so we proved that. So on that trip, I then meet Joe Randazzo. 
And he hires me to co-direct and co-produce a very extensive documentary, which was called uh, UFO Contactees. And he spent about $250,000 on it. And remember, this is 1990 now, mind you. And it was the most comprehensive exploration of not just the UFO phenomenon, but the people that had actually been contacted, taken on the ships, had either had friendly contacts, negative contacts were being used as breeders, if you will, you know, women who were being taken on the ship and eggs were being taken and, and hybrid children were being, were actually being created from their genetic material. So we traveled around the world for, gosh, about four months, I think, and put together nearly 600 hours of uh, taped interviews with, uh, with abductees, contactees, scientists, researchers. Somebody had a dog barked at a UFO. We went out and talked to them. <laughs> and, but we went, to, we went to Switzerland, the Billy Myers farm. We right, went all right. down Italy. We went to Spain. We, went to, we were in England when the modern crop circle phenomenon, when it was really just circles before it became you know, glyphs and puzzles and all kinds of things. But there were giant circles being formed in the fields like while we were sleeping out in the fields. So some pretty amazing stuff. And we interviewed a scientist named, uh, named uh, Robert Lazar. Ah, and Bob yes. Lazar, this was in, uh, I think, February of 1990, and Bob in May of 89 had defected from Area 51 and claimed to be a part-time scientist there and had been called onto the base to work a couple of days here and there. And he, you know, he'd only worked, I think, about a grand total of, I think, 18 days total, actually, at the facility. And he had been sort of a local celebrity because George Knapp was the one who worked for, who actually won, a, uh, won an Emmy for uh, uh, UFOs, The Best Evidence is the name of it. A fantastic thing. I think you can pick it up on YouTube or you know, DVD. But he'd made Lazar kind of a local celebrity, but nobody had really heard of him outside of the kind of strange world of local Vegas news. So we interview Bob, and uh, at the end of this interview, so, you know, said some amazing things about his interactions with the saucers and how he got the job and, and uh, told us a lot of things where his story kind of changed later on. We had private conversations with him where he'd actually had some really kind of horrifying uh, interactions with what he claimed were extraterrestrial beings actually on the base, on the facility, which he later then recanted, which, which we thought was very strange. But uh, uh, Bob said, look, you don't have to believe me. All you got to do is go out to Highway 375, which has, now been, which has now been renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway, by the way, thanks to me and other people out there. Uh, go stand by this black mailbox on Steve Medlin's ranch at the mile 18 marker on this, on this highway. And go out on Wednesday nights, and about dusk to about 9.30, you'll see him test the ships. So it took a year for me to get there. And uh, by that time, uh, I think in uh, November, December of uh, 89, uh, George, George uh, uh, Noria Haikawa, uh, uh, Gary Schultz, um, Anthony Hilder, uh, my buddy uh, uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, you know, they'd gone out there. And so I joined the crew in February of 91 when uh, I had uh, a friend of mine who worked for the LA Times, Shannon Sands, was a reporter for the Times. So we went out there and me and a, another buddy of mine, Jeff Slack, and she had a, a photographer with her. And uh, I'm not going to relate the whole experience, but she was in another car with a photographer and it was a, a stormy night. Let me, let me just and, jump in here, Sean. You know, this is a good okay. time to to, uh, to break. We'll, we'll come back and reset. Sean David Morton here uh, discussing area. 51, the secret space program right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The 
Uh, Neil Armstrong was overheard saying that we were basically warned off the moon that these extraterrestrial civilizations did not want us going to other planets. They really want us to go out into space as a peaceful, unified people, not in a militaristic way. The energy and propulsion systems behind these devices would completely enable us to heal the Earth, Gaia, without which we have no future. The, the question of what kind of future do we have or we're fighting over the matter of oil coming out of the Middle East. The biosphere simply cannot withstand another 50 or 60 years of this kind of secrecy. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Sean David Morton, remote viewer, documentary film producer, author, uh, and uh, the man really uh, largely responsible for, for bringing Area 51 into the public uh, consciousness. So uh, there you are out at uh, mile 18 uh, and uh, by the black mailbox, the infamous, infamous black mailbox with an L.A. Well, last year we were driving up the road. Ah, we, okay. we actually drove up the road towards the facility. And... Uh, we had a sheriff stop us. You know, the, the Mars Venus lights came out of the came out of the fog, and he said, "You guys got to turn around. There's a military base up there, and they're doing uh, they're doing testing." And you know, we joked with him and said, "Oh, you mean the military base? It's not on the map." And he's like, "Yeah, very funny. Just you know, just turn your car around, wise guy, and go back the other way." And uh, Shannon was in the front car with her photographer, and they sped on back down the road. And Jeff and I were driving very slowly, and and uh, literally had a. As dramatic as it sounds, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing because we don't have that much time, but this, a flying saucer basically almost hit our car. It, it came on its edge right in front of us in the middle of the road. We slammed into the side of the road, just sat there, just complete horrified shock. And then it just kind of bounced off into the desert. We got out of the car and we chased after it. And, uh, you know, the thing sort of then came at us. It changed directions and it, and it, and it lit up like the sun for a brief period. And, and we got our faces burned by it. And we got really sick from being too close to it. And then it went bouncing off into the desert. So we jump in the car and drive back down. And and there's about 30 people at the at the at the top of the road where we're jumping up and down saying, look, there's the saucer. And you can see it plain as day now because the clouds had cleared and this thing was just dancing around the valley. And uh, the funny part was Shannon, who was the reporter, is like, I can't see it. I'm like, what do you mean you can't see it? She goes, well, I'm well, I'm I'm night blind in one eye and I'm like legally blind in the other. And I'm like, so we're and we're all sitting there yelling and screaming. And then the reporter that's incidentally how I would uh, I would describe most members of the mainstream media. <laughs> exactly, but this photographer, this snotty kid, it was the photographer. We said, "Well, take photos of this. There's a UFO. It's you know, it's it's like way off in the distance, but it's bouncing all around, doing crazy things." And he says, "I can't." And we said, "What do you mean you can't? You're a photographer of the LA Times." And he says, "Well, I brought a Hasselblad portrait camera that has a range of 12 feet, and I was told to take pictures of people looking at UFOs, oh, not great. to take pictures of UFOs." And he packed up his car and left. So, you know, so the next day, a front page story, actually about two days later, a front page story appears in the LA Times uh, about Area 51, which basically just has us, you know, looking up in the sky, you know, us sitting in our lawn chairs, you know, us, you know, somebody put up a sign that said, you know, saucer watching spot here and all that. You know, once again, even though they saw it, even though, you know, with their own eyes, you know, they made us look like we were just lunatics who just went out to the side of the road for no particular reason. So I got hooked on this and started going out like every other Wednesday. And then all my friends wanted to come. And then we started reading, you know, like big vans. And I took everybody from, you know, Dean Devlin from Independence Day to uh, 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 to uh, Conan O'Brien and the, and the guys that write The Simpsons when Conan O'Brien used to be the head writer on The Simpsons to uh, – uh, I forget her name. but She's a big-time director, Betty – 
she used to be on Hill Street Blues, and then she directed uh, she directed um, um, Private Parts. Howard Stern's right, Private Parts. Right, I know what you mean. I, yeah, I can't think of her name. And Brady Bunch. Ah, I can't forget her name. Betty. Not Betty White, because she's the old one. Betty. Oh, I forget. Anyway, so but she was a famous actress and director and all that. So uh, over the course of like three years, then then sightings gets involved, and I work on sightings for a while, and I, I produce the uh, uh, I produce the segment on Area 51 for the premiere of sightings. We take Geraldo Rivera out there. We had a short-lived show working for Geraldo called Now It Can Be Told and uh, working with uh, Craig, Craig Rivers, who's his brother, because Geraldo's real name is, is – he's a, he's a Jewish Puerto Rican. His real name is Jerry Rivers. Uh, so his brother Craig and I became pretty good friends. So this was all – you know, the fun part about this was is that in my working for uh, sightings for Geraldo, for uh, a show called Hard Copy that I worked for as a freelance producer for a couple of years, uh, with Bob Keviat on Unsolved Mysteries, uh, being behind uh, originally the Alien Autopsy. Uh, and you know, and Bob Kevy had actually kind of you know getting getting that entire story and my setting him up with that to the alien interview. There's so many things that have come out of uh, come out of Area 51. Now I was told, and the the biggest thing that we saw out there, which I thought was really interesting, just be, just from the point of view of the manned personnel and a tip of the iceberg of what's really going on, is every usually every Wednesday, like the drive-in, we would go out and we would see discs, and they would fly. And now remember, Area 51 sits at the edge of a, a military reservation that takes up virtually the entire middle part of the state of Nevada. It's three times the size of Switzerland. And it stretches from Nellis Air Force Base all the way up the center part of the state. So they can, you know, play war games and red flags and, you know, blow stuff up. And yet every Wednesday night on a schedule, they were flying these ships, you know, anywhere between fifty to two thousand feet off the deck, right over our heads. They knew we were out there. And why weren't they testing in the, you know, in the military zone? Well, that yeah, that begs that obviously the, the obvious question is if if the, these uh, craft that you saw were let's say back engineered alien technology, or even if they were you know just built in the good old USA with good old American know how, why would they why would they expend that amount of time and resources in trying to keep these things secret inside the base and then fly them out where everyone can look at them? Don't know. And I've asked that exact same question over and over and over again, unless the entire thing was a was a psyop to, you know, to create this kind of buzz around five one and, uh, you know, just just create, again, an impression that the military is somehow in control. And, you know, look, I mean, they made they made the movie Independence Day. Dean Devlin went out there with me. And, you know, we just talked about, you know, so if there was an extraterrestrial invasion, Area 51 would pretty much be our first line of defense. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. And then he wrote the entire movie, uh, Independence Day. Now, he was, he was written a letter by the military because they had, they had the full-on cooperation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military and the Army and the Navy and the whole deal. They were going to use El Toro and all this. And he was written a letter that said, if you mention Area 51 in this movie, we're pulling our support. And he said, well, you can't not have a movie about extraterrestrials and not mention Area 51. Uh, you know, that's like having a monster movie without the aliens in it. And they pulled their support, which is why they had to move the entire production up to Utah and use the salt flats and like the Utah National Guard and all that. So they're pretty sensitive about this. Now, when I found the hilltop that looked down on the base, and this was uh, May of 90 of 91, I was pretty stunned because this was a chunk in their armor where I could climb up to the top of this hill and I could see their house from there. And I came back a month later with a, a buddy of mine, and we, you know, hid out under a tarp, and we filmed the place for the for the whole night, and filmed all kinds of crazy things up there. And that video has been seen on every show about Area 51 you've ever seen. I don't know how they stole it and continue to use it without paying me, but uh, you know, so but but they do. Um, 
and then everything kind of stopped. We were told by some inside sources that because of the heat that we'd put on the base, that everything had been moved to a place called Area 6413 in uh, in Utah. And uh, the strangest thing for me, and just to put it, I mean, there's so much stuff we go into about Area 51 because we had dealings with not only Bob Lazar, but a guy named Ghost Walker who... Uh, who claimed to be a, an assassin that was then in his spare time was actually then assigned to Area 51 as a security guard, that he was given the, uh, access to Level 5. Uh, the mysterious Victor, who came out with two minutes and 55 seconds of an actual, that later became known as the alien interview, uh, where we interviewed him not only on film, but uh, you know we did it on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell back when he had 26 million listeners worldwide. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff we you know came out of the base about the, and remember the area fifty one section, the, the Groom Lake section, was where the big hangar is. They were working on, uh, you know, the SR seventy one, the uh, the F one seventeen A and the YF twenty two fighter, and you know a lot of exotic equipment there. But you had to take another bus down to another section of the base because everything was divided up. There was you know there was five one, there was the area they called Groom, there was the Dreamland guys, then you had the S four Papoose guys. Which was a whole other hangar where they actually then stored the uh, the nine craft that they had actually gotten through something called Project Pounce. That's where Bob Lazar was, correct? S four. Yeah, he was then taken there, and and he was one of and the only reason he got the job was apparently they tried to crack open an engine while it was running to see how it worked or something, and it exploded and killed five of these scientists. So because he knew Edward Teller. And he called Edward Teller, the inventor of the hydrogen bomb, and said, hey, have you ever heard of a place called Area 51? I'm kind of thinking about getting a job there. And he thought Teller was going to laugh him off. And Teller said, I'll see what I can do, and hung up the phone. And the next day, he got a call and went in to go work for EE&G, because these are all private contractors up there. This EE&G was TRW, Northrop Boeing. So they had to get permission. In order for them to fly the exotic stuff, they would tell, they would ask Nellis, could you please turn your radar off on Wednesday nights? And Nellis said, screw you. We're not doing any such thing. So there was, there was a real conflict between whoever was there and the actual military. So anybody that thinks that you know the U.S. government military is all responsible for this is just you know is wrong. There's, no, there's, a, there's a lot of conflict between what was going on there. And yeah. the biggest thing we. I was Sorry. just going to say, in talking to, to guys like Richard Dolan, I have the I, I got the impression that somewhere, you know, in the years following Roswell, basically Truman uh, turned this this whole operation o over to private hands and basically washed his hands of it. Well, you, yeah, that's the, the that's the magic, majestic twelve stuff, and it's it's just it goes beyond that, and, and because you you have to understand. And we'll get into this. I don't know how much time we have, but we can get into the you know the whole general purpose of this. The, the rest of Area 51 was that uh, we went out and slept in the dirt for like six months and didn't see a thing. And uh, that's when the idiots showed up. That's when you know guys like you know Glenn Campbell and all these other and all these other guys. And of course, once I found the base and I told John Lear about it, then everybody else, like Jim Goodman and everybody else, goes up and climbs the top of that mountain. So you know, I, <laughs> I don't care. I never get any credit. Uh, you know, for being chased by these people, for you know, for having them, you know, shoot at me from helicopters, and you know, put machine gun bullets in a camera that I had there, and you know, because I was like the Lone Ranger, basically doing all the stuff by myself, which was really dumb, and and they could have done anything to me and dragged me across the line, I suppose, but. Uh, um, so the bottom line of this whole thing is that eventually the saucer stuff stopped. The biggest thing that we saw with a friend of mine named John Hadley, another guy who died a mysterious death, uh, was we saw a gigantic shuttle. 
that was about 1,600 feet from tip to tail. I mean, this thing was like it had a huge blunt shovel nose on it. Uh, looked like uh, two doorstops, a big wedge, uh, cut in half, black on the bottom, white on the top. And this thing uh, flew right over our heads at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was coming in from space, and it was creating these gigantic shockwaves as it came in from space. It, was, it, was, it created what, in Los Angeles, in the news, they called skyquakes. And it was all over the news. I mean, Paul Moyers was on the news going, well, whatever this thing was, came in from space and traveled in Mach 25 and landed at the mysterious Area 51, but the military denies any knowledge of it. And you know, this is on the news for the times he's happened, because I'm in Hermosa Beach, and I mean, it shook my house as this thing came over in a reverse earthquake where the ceiling started going first, and then the bottom of the house. My word. And we saw this thing, and and we were we learned later from uh, from a contact that this thing was being brought in from space because there was something wrong with it that it was not calibrated correctly, and so they had to make the unusual thing of landing it several times at five one. But this thing came, this thing like it was like it was like Darth Vader's you know Avenger ship. It, it came right over our heads. Only time the Wackenhut guys ever chased us. Only time that we were really. I mean, just terrified for our lives. The camo dudes. The camo dudes. The camo dudes, yeah, yeah. the Wackenut guys, which who usually when you try to talk to them, they would just run away. But this time, uh, you know, John Hadley, we got the, we, we, and the footage we got was terrible. It was, looked like the inside of somebody's stomach. But <laughs> these guys chased us, and we, we, we were doing 120 miles an hour in a truck with our lights off with, uh, with John Hadley with his bug-like, you know, night vision goggle thing driving in the pitch dark to make it to the little alien in Rachel. Uh, you know, where we jumped out of the truck, you know, threw a tarp over it, ran into, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, the little trailers out there. And uh, and then they surrounded the place. And then they just went up to the door and just tried the handle. It was locked. And, went, eh. and then they all went away, which is a big anticlimactic thing to it. But, uh, you know, we were scared to death. So, I'll take uh, anticlimactic every time. Listen, yeah. uh, uh, Sean, hold on. We'll take another time out. Come back. Sean David Morton, Area 51 and the Secret Space Program right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke. There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're looking at the interview suite at S4. Uh, It's kept dark for the comfort of the aliens. The uh, figure who is just barely visible in the left foreground is the telepath, and behind the camera is a raked seating area for observers. Although in this case, I believe the only other person uh, present was a military aide the alien is seated behind a glass partition in a biocontainment area, which is maintained at biosafety level 2, the lowest uh, designation. That's primarily for the uh, protection of the aliens, not us. The theory is that uh, if they were going to infect us with an alien bug, it would have happened 50 years ago. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, 
and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed and that there was no evidence of a power plant. But this also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're getting an um, uh, inside tour, Area 51, with Sean David Morton, remote viewer, author, documentary film producer, and uh, the man largely credited with bringing Area 51 into the public consciousness back in the early 90s. Uh, now, do you have, to what extent, I mean, is there any way to, to get a handle on, you know, which of these craft were back engineered, which of them were actual alien craft, which of them were just engineered by good old American know-how? Well, the stuff we've got now, you can actually. There's a couple of pretty good examples of it. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, now with YouTube and all the video stuff. I mean, go on YouTube, and the most advanced thing that I know that we're flying now is is something called the TR3B Astra. And uh, take a look at it. You can go on YouTube. There's a bunch of footage. There was some footage that was actually taken in France, uh, on, on a hillside just outside uh, just outside Paris. Uh, of the uh, of 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 the TR3B Astra, it's it's amazing. It's really cool because if you know the technology that they're using, it combines everything. It's uh, the, you know the ship is a is a huge black triangle. Uh, it's floating on the gravity field of the Earth. It's being pushed forward by, for all intents and purposes, what looks like an impulse drive, if you will. But in the center of the Astra, there's a a, a big glowing circle that's like a quantum field. Then what you see is the Astra then powers up where this where this bubble. Uh, actually appears, uh, you know, all, through the ship, to the top and the bottom of the ship, this bubble goes bloop, and then it, it, it calms down, and then the bubble then encompasses the entire craft and uh, teleports it, basically grabs onto another point in space, bends space, uh, turns the gravity amplifiers off, and then, and then space sort of snaps back to its original size and shape. But you can go all the way back, I mean, really, if you want to look at this, uh, T. Townsend Brown, was a scientist, you know, and the and the guys that were the you know the real brain trust, you know, Manhattan Project were the you know kindergartner kids, you know, working on atomic bombs. The real guys were guys like, uh, uh, you know, John Vanoyman and Vannevar Bush, you know, the guys that founded companies like Raytheon, and and he was the uh, national science director for the federal government. You had Nikolai Tesla. So it's an interesting thing, but they all worked on something called the Philadelphia experiment, experiment that was also called Project Rainbow, and R- Rainbow was all about not just radar invisibility, but what later became teleportation. And then they began to realize that the aspect of when you're teleporting uh, or traveling superluminally, if you will, you travel through another dimension. You travel into a, I guess for all intents and purposes, a fifth dimension or an astral plane uh, in order to go to where you're going. So a, a majority of the saucer stuff was not about propulsion systems, but in essence, and this is what my book Sands of Time is all about, uh, is very much about the discovery and mastery of travel through time. So it's not about uh, time travel or, or, or achieving these amazing uh, 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 speeds. It's not about moving the craft through space. It's about moving the space around the craft. Uh, there is that, but if you actually look at it, for example, Bob Lazar explained in his science experiment that what you're working with, the ships that they were working with at 5-1 had three gravity amplifiers at the bottom. They were like, uh, they look like lamps, and then you have, uh, uh, you have hemispheres that are on the, on the bottom of those. It was powered by a, uh, an antimatter drive that, in essence, you have, uh, this is what Lazar was saying, they developed something called, and, and when Lazar did this back in 91 or 92, 
uh, all this cutting edge science, because now we're 20 plus years later, every, every single thing that he said turned out to be real. Every single thing, everything he said about the elements that uh, the elements are immensely unstable in the one in the one thirteen range, you know, up to up to about one thirteen, one twelve, one thirteen. Suddenly, one fourteen, one fifteen, they mysteriously stabilize, and then element one sixteen becomes, for all intents and purposes, antimatter. And so, what they were doing is that they were they were taking a a very rare metal that many people believe they could only get from certain extraterrestrial races, plugging in an extra proton, turning it into element one sixteen. Uh, hitting a target gas and then getting an almost uh, 96% nullification. A cobalt bomb is 4% nullification, and it creates that kind of explosion. So this was the immense power that they were getting. When the ships were in what he called Omicron mode, they would simply float on the magnetic field of the Earth. That's why when you see these ships, they they bounce. It's almost like if you're looking at a boat and the, if the ocean's invisible, it would look as though the boat was you know rocking up and down or doing all kinds of crazy things if you couldn't see the water. And then in what they call Delta mode, they would turn on all three gravity amplifiers and literally reach through fifth dimensional space, grab the point that they want to be at, bend space, and then the ship itself would simply then move into that space, turn off the gravity amplifiers, and then time and space would then snap back to its original size and shape. So what you were doing is that you were literally chasing a black hole. You were sort of creating a black hole in front of the ship and then and then kind of and kind of rolling downhill, uh, you know, into this black hole. And of course. You create your own gravity field, so there's no feeling of of motion uh, in the craft. I mean, another another thing is is that uh, these things are making uh, 90 degree turns at 40,000 miles an hour. Any pilot inside of them, under natural gravity, would be you know squished like a bug against the against the sidewalls. Another weird thing is too is that why do UFOs, even though they're zipping from place to place, they do they don't make sonic booms. That's another weird thing. Why aren't they going boom 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 every time they move? So, because they, they have a bubble of air that they take along with them. Sean, you are on a roll. Uh, I hate to stop you, but we've got to take care of some business. On the other side, we'll get back into this. I want to find out how this information, this inside information about Area 51 and the secret space program came to you. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with Sean David Morton. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Sean David Morton stays with us for a few moments yet here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, Sean, I, I, I want to find out from you how this information got to you, all this inside information about Area 51 and the secret space program. Um, did you uncover declassified documents through FOIA? Did, did somebody, some whistleblower come to you and, and um, you know, decide that maybe on his deathbed he had to, to get this off his chest? How? In my book, Sands of Time, uh, one of the people when I was fooling around with Area 51, who who apparently was friends with my dad, uh, who knew of me, who knew my father, who knew, uh, you know, who'd worked it. And this was a guy that had become, I later learned, had become the top guy in a lot of these shadow government operations. And for many years, I was getting phone calls from people that just said, you know, hey, I want to help you out here and why don't you take a look at this. And... Uh, about two years ago, well, actually in 2010, so three years ago now, um, I got a call from these really mysterious lawyers up in Westwood. And I show up, and they make me sign all these papers, these non-circ, non-discloses, which are, which are pretty standard in Hollywood anyway when you're pitching a film project. And they handed me these journals. And they said, this is, they said these are the, uh, the diaries of your friend, the journals of your friend. And you can do anything you want with these. You can publish them. You can turn them into a book or novelize them or whatever. You just can't use his real name to protect his uh, certain active personnel and his wife and his daughter, who are still alive. And I later then find out, as I start going through these notes, and I came up with the, just because I'm all about trying to get information out and entertaining people at the same time, uh, I novelized, I, I took all this nonfiction and I novelized the nonfiction uh, into my book, Sands of Time, which now has a, it's got a five-star rating on Amazon. I think we sold about 10,000 copies of the book in, uh, in hardback. Uh, it's become this gigantic cult hit. It's just, it's just because it starts, if you're, if you're interested in the UFO phenomena, and you want to start at the beginning. If you want to start at Project Rainbow and the Philadelphia Experiment and then how this develops, this is the story of Dr. Ted Humphrey, who at 17 years old, his father, who you discover is working on time travel, disappears, vanishes. He goes to USC. He goes to Caltech. Uh, he gets absorbed into these top-secret programs. He is at the Montauk Project when they're, when they're working on teleporting probes into the heart of Russian nuclear blasts so that they can actually study the center of the nuclear blast so they can understand how time dilation works in the middle of an explosion because time actually does flux when you explode things, especially atomic bombs. And so he was working at Montauk and then he graduates from Montauk to then go on to, he later becomes the number one guy in the secret government throughout like 40 years of, of his life. And you get a little bit more sympathy for what these guys are doing. It's not so much that uh, you know, and this gets to the, this gets to the the overall point to it. What they are doing, according to him, in the process of this, as you go through these forty years of the shadow government, uh, his argument was that there is cooperation between the United States and the Russians and the Chinese on a very high level, and that they have been building a using all this technology to not only build a to figure out how to travel through time and alter certain events in time, but uh, a, a massive planetary defense system that stretches out into the solar system, if you will, because according to him, uh, something very big and very bad and very nasty is on its way here. Uh, a, a particularly nasty Alfred Draconian race uh, it seemed kind of hell-bent for leather to actually you know, arrive here. And uh, interstellar travel is much more difficult than people expect. You have to be between solar systems in order to use it. You then have to travel at you know lower than light speeds in between the solar systems. You have to refuel. So supposedly, this force is going to get here um, sometime between like 2020 and 2025. Sean, uh, let me just jump in here, if I could. Sean sure. David Morton uh, with this author, documentary um, filmmaker, remote viewer, the author of 
the sands of time, 40 years in the shadow government based on an incredible true story, uh, a number of other books, including uh, The Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to Astral Travel. Now, uh, Sean, let me just pick up on a few points. Okay. Um, this technology that they've been back engineered at, I mean, are we able to trace that back? Was it uh, retrieved at the crash at Roswell? Uh, was even 50, Area 51 operational then? Uh, or was it... No. Take- because everything went to originally, everything went to Wright Patterson Air Force Base or what they called Hangar 18 in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, you know, five one, they only moved the 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 uh, late fifties, early sixties. And this is what you're hearing. There's some LA Times reporter that was talking about this. Oh, I've talked to the old timers at fifty one. You know, they developed the SR seventy one Blackbird. You know, SR stands for surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, I mean, the SR seventy one Blackbird was doing Mach three to Mach five. In, in 1964, so and then they retire the Blackbird in 74 when everybody finds out about it, uh, and then they uh, well I'm sorry every found everybody found out about it in 74 and then they retired the whole program in 78 never to announce what replaced it. So there's all kinds of exotic aircraft that are being made up. I mean you've got ramjets, scramjets, plutonium pulse drives. Uh, we saw this uh, this weird contrail that we called uh, you know we called donuts on a rope. Uh, because it had these little, it, it was like a contrail, but it had these big puffy clouds that looked like donuts along it. That was supposedly a, a, a pulse drive. Uh, there's what they call the pumpkin seed, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And the TR-3B Astro, which is a fantastic combination of a lot of various hybrid technologies. The the ships were only moved into uh, the nine craft that they got through Project Pounce, which which apparently Ted Humphrey was the one that wanted them all located at five one. Uh, they only got about 86, uh, 85, 86, because here's where all the weird stuff started happening at 5-1. 5-1 was just a you know, regular run-of-the-mill, skunk works, uh, you know, Northrop Grumman, uh, you know, making, making B-2 bombers kind of thing. And 85, 86, they then apply to Nevada to extend their borders, because you used to be able to just walk over these low hills. You could just, uh, John Lear has photos from the late 70s where you could just walk over this low hill and stand at a chain, not even a chain link fence, they had posts with like a, with, with a, a single chain in between the posts and you could photograph the base. Uh, then they wanted their border expanded because they didn't want people doing that. So they applied to Nevada. And Nevada said, you're already out in the middle of nowhere. What else? What do you want more land for? You've already got the whole middle part of the state. And then they got really stinky about it. In 86, they just took the land. They took like 100, or they took about uh, 89,000 acres of land. And um, and it pissed off Nevada. And you know, Nevada said, "What?" and Harry Reid, who was a congressman, said, what gives you the right to just confiscate the, the land of a sovereign state? And they said, well, we, we answer to a much higher authority than you, sir. And he's like, you want to tell me who's higher than the U.S. Senate or the United States Congress? And they said, well, yeah, I tell you what, you, you come behind closed doors with us. You take a little tour of 5-1. We'll feed you some pine-scented Kool-Aid, and, uh, and you'll see. And after that, every single person that's done that, from Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton signed a bunch of executive orders that said that Area 51 is above the Constitution and, and the laws of the United States cannot be implied there, you know, to Harry Reid, who said, oh, that's just fine. So they took this extra land. Now, when I found the hilltop, that looked down on the facility. They, they spent like billions of dollars trying to figure this one out because they couldn't expand their border more than 5,000 acres without permission from the state. So what they did is they snaked out a tentacle that just is about six inches wide that goes to the top of the hill and just takes just the top of the hill. So they've got a big fence and a bunch of wires and all that so you can't get to the top of the hill anymore. Um, 
so that's so that was when the the weird stuff happened. And also, this is when they built the uh, the S four facility. That's kind of a dune colored uh, camouflaged hangar that's built into the side of the mountain. That goes down five levels. You actually had nine ships, some of which worked. There was another one that had a big hole in it. Uh, you know, they they were testing a laser apparently and burned a hole through this thing. And the floors would then drop down, and they could then slide them into. Uh, 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 hangar bays that were lit 360 degrees and then had these, these what they called the monkey bars that would actually come out from the sides so that the technicians could have you know 360 degree access to the saucer then you went down to third level which was like scientists and lunchroom and whatever fourth level was security personnel and there was a fifth level which got pretty scary because they called it the zoo in one part which were a number of bodies in a blue liquid in these large glass tubes uh, with these uh, uh, metallic metal stripes at sort of the breast and the groin. Now, where does that information come from? Is that from Lazar or Victor? No, or? that was from a guy that was well. Uh, that was that was from a guy that worked as a security guard there, and okay. this was from Ghost Walker. And the advantage of this was is that in uh, from May until about December of '90, when I told when I took John Lear for his birthday, actually up to the top of the mountain, I'm the only one that knew what the base looked like. So when Ghost Walker came along, this guy Connor. Uh, he shows up at my house after going through a number of different UFO investigators and having some very strange things happen. And I was terrified. I slept with, I mean, a loaded 38 under my pillow for a week while this guy was here. Uh, dude was 6'4", had gold eyes, had a, had a scar like you know, on the right side of his face. I, I, I watched him jump from a standing start. Uh, about eight feet in the air, up to up to one of the lifeguard stands out on the beach. I, I, this dude was just creepy, and he talked about how he'd done like sixty kills for the government, and now he wanted out. That he was going to give me this pile of paper, uh, you know, for me to go with. And this is when I was working for Geraldo. This was, you know, when now it can be told, and Bob Keviet was working there. We went out to Vegas. You know, we had this big adventure, went all these different ways, and the guy just disappeared. Guy just said, "Well, I'll see you at three o'clock," and I was there with armed security guards with tickets in hand to fly him to the East Coast for. Geraldo interview him, and he he vanished. I, I I never saw him again. So, but he drew a map of what the base looked like. He knew it. He'd been there, and he said, "I when I wasn't being an assassin, the 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 prime uh, uh, the prime assignment." was 5-1. He says, because underground, they've got bowling alleys, they've got, you know, baseball fields, the food is five-star, they've got, like, lobster and crab every day. He said it puts the best the best hotels in Vegas to shame, and everybody wanted that assignment because the food was so great. And, um, and he was the one that actually had the guard duty on level five, where one half of it was the zoo, but the other half was what they called the ambassadorial suites, and they actually had living extraterrestrials. Uh, at one end of this. Now, years later, when the mysterious Victor stuff came out, you see, all this stuff kind of confirms itself. Everything, you know, all the stuff that I learned, I, there's another story that, that backs it up, and, and there's all these different sources that don't know about each other uh, that then confirm the other thing. So when the, uh, when the mysterious Victor and the alien interview came out, this was all level five, and this alien that they'd had, he'd smuggled out this two minutes and 55 seconds of film, uh, was living in this in this ambassadorial suite. Now they they had to control the atmosphere. Uh, it ate a special diet because it was sort of a it was like a spirulina. It was almost like a uh, it was like whale food. It was a certain type of type of algae. And eventually the creature died because it had no defenses to the microscopic spores in the air, which they couldn't figure they could they couldn't filter out well enough. And the thing uh, and these beings only have a. Uh, they're actually very simple biologically. They've got a, a they've got a single lung, heart kind of pulmonary mechanism that uh, that once it gets infected, there was you know there was really nothing they can do for it. But my question was to Victor, 
uh, was, I mean, was it a captured prisoner? And Victor was like, I don't know, uh, you know, do, did Jesus allow the Romans to crucify him? Couldn't he have called down a host of angels at any right. time? Good analogy. Do something yeah. about it? So it became more of a, and he says, were we communicating with it? And he said, well, I don't know. We have these intuitive communicators that they call intcoms, and we don't know if the guys are lying or not. How, how are we supposed to know? You know, it's, if you pat your dog on the head and say, good boy, or you're communicating with your dog. Because it's literally like, you know, like showing your dog a card trick or trying to teach him, you know, trigonometry. So that was right. the level that these things were on. Listen, Sean, I got I to gotta just about wrap this up here. But, oh, okay. Uh, All right, sorry. No, no worries. Listen, we, we'll have, have you back and uh, do a part two and a part three, whatever it takes. Just remind uh, listeners, The Sands of Time uh, is the book, 40 Years Inside the Shadow Government, based on an incredible true story. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's, uh, you can get the uh, the hardcover, and we have it in dynamic voice audio as well. So we, you can get the, get the sound version of the book, you get the hardcover of the book, you get the PDF of the book. Uh, Sands of Time, greatest book you'll ever read. And uh, it's it's uh, all a true story about all this stuff. And it explains, once again, if, if you've never been into this ever before and you want everything from soup to nuts from beginning to end, Sands of Time is the best place to go. Sean, a real pleasure. Um, Thank you, Richard. I'm thrilled that you join me and let's do it again. Okay. Sean David Morton, The Sands of Time. And I warned you, he likes to talk. And I was more than uh, willing to just sit back and listen. Sean David Morton is a fascinating guy. I will have him back. And again, that book is called The Sands of Time, 40 Years Inside the Shadow Government. Hey, uh, check out the website, richardserrett.com. Richard Serrett, all one word, S-Y-R-E-T-T. That's your portal to the conspiracy show. All the information need, you need on upcoming programs. There's a book club. There's a secret document uh, a page. There's a page dedicated to some of our regular contributors. And also, I post some interesting, uh, some interesting stories in the news on the right-hand side. So check those, those out as well. And... While you're at it, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey friends, good to have you aboard once again. And uh, again, a, um, I'm very proud to uh, welcome two new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show, WTSL AM 1400, WTSL AM 1400, Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230, Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh, listen, very busy show. Bottom of the hour, though, 12.30 in about a half an hour's time. Well, in a, to my affiliates, 12.30 means nothing. In about a half hour, we're going to open up the phone lines and do open lines for the last half of the show. Right now, though, you know, since ancient times, uh, we have long suspected that uh, we're not the only residents of the planet. And sliding in and out of visibility are races of beings who live in nature, the elements and underground. Some call them fairies. 
And uh, my next guest is going to explain how we can see fairies. Rosemary Ellen Garley, one of the leading experts of the paranormal, uh, the author of over 50 books, and she joins us the second Sunday of every month. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Doing well, Richard. Uh, weathering out a storm here, but I think we're going to be okay. Uh, you know, it's been a, a while since we've talked about uh, f- fairies, and everything that I remember as a kid sort of learning about fairies or reading about fairies really came from uh, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Scotland. But is that, the, is that where the origin lies in, in the United Kingdom, or does it even predate that? Fairies are everywhere around the planet. Uh, Every culture has a mythology about the little people or the invisible people, the people who preceded human beings. What we know here uh, in Western culture, most of that does come from the Celtic countries because fairy lore developed very strongly in the UK, in northern France, in Ireland and Scotland. Uh, And a lot of that got um, imported into America when people immigrated. And, of course, from Victorian times, we had uh, those pictures reportedly uh, uh, of fairies captured on film. What do you you make of those those photographs? I mean, is it possible to capture a fairy on, on a photographic film? It is possible. In fact, I have some photographs and even some video of fairies that uh, I am convinced is the real thing. They are, however, exceptionally difficult to photograph, just like ghosts and apparitions and other kinds of entities that we run into. But back in, in those Victorian times, actually was around the turn of the 20th century, there was a major scandal involving hoaxed fairy photographs. And the photographs, amazingly, were put together by two kids, a 17-year-old and and a 9-year-old. And uh, they fooled a lot of experts, including the eminent Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the Sherlock Holmes stories. He was totally taken in by the the, uh, photographs. And when they were exposed as a hoax, uh, he was quite humiliated. But if we go back in time, let's, we were talking about England, and I, and I know that sometime around the 12th century, uh, in a place called Woolpit, Suffolk, there was a fairly famous incident uh, of an encounter with, with, I think, two fairy children that were caught in a wolf trap or something. What is that story, and how credible is it? I think it's very credible. In fact, there are similar stories like that. There, there are so many in folklore that are really hard to explain away. But that story from Woolpit in England involved two children whose skin was actually green. And they were found by villagers trapped in a wolf pit, which was designed to keep wolves from uh, attacking the livestock. And um, the children were taken to the local night, and uh, they were very upset and hungry. And eventually, when they could talk, uh, they said that they came from a land of perpetual twilight, and they'd gotten lost. One day, they had uh, heard uh, the sound of bells, Uh, they encountered a cavern, and they followed the sound of the bells uh, through this cavern and emerged out into this world of intense sunlight. In fact, the, the sunlight was so bright that it knocked them senseless. And uh, that's when they were found by the villagers. So this fit what people believe to be the world of fairy, which which is this underground uh, land, sort of in, we would call it another dimension, which is lit by perpetual twilight. It's The sun is just never very bright, and it never gets completely dark. Well, the two children 
um, no one knew how to send them back. So they were pretty much stuck on, on our side. And the boy got sick and he died, but uh, the girl survived and she eventually became a servant of the night. Uh, very interesting story. And we find similar stories in fairy tales and folklore, also about human beings uh, also traveling to fairyland. So it seems to be a two-way doorway. When, when I think of fairies, I think of fate. In fact, I think fairies, fairy, the word fairy derives from the Latin uh, meaning fate. So what is the connection between fairies and, and human fate? What, what is the connection? The original connection had to do with enchantment. And uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, yes, the, the word fairy comes from fata or fate, uh, a reference to the three fates of classical mythology, three women who spin the threads and the yarns of time and weave the destiny of people. And uh, the relationship to that was um, the fact that fairies were often associated, this skill was often associated with women who could enchant. And fairies also had the ability, they had the ability, to enchant people, to cast glamour over them, to um, put them into states of suspended animation. And so that's how these threads came together. So if you get on the good side uh, of a fairy, uh, then I guess fate will smile on you. But if you cross a fairy, uh, then what, you'll be cursed with, with bad luck? Or how will that work? Well, it is very tricky to deal with the fairies. And in fact, many of our ancestors from uh, the Celtic lands were very leery of fairies and even frightened of fairies because of their powers. It seems that fairies run in all stripes like human beings. There are good fairies and fairies that are helpful to people. There are tricky fairies and mischievous uh, fairies. And then there are fairies that really don't care for human beings at all because they feel that they lost their place on the planet to us. The reason why they had to retreat into these otherworldly areas was because human beings spread around the planet and dominated it. So uh, the fairies do have a reputation for being uh, very vengeful. And uh, if, you, if you show disrespect or you inadvertently harm fairies or if they have any reason at all to take a dislike to you, they can use their supernatural powers against you. Those who are helpful can use those powers to help people. Paranormal investigator, researcher, best-selling author Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking fairies. Now, uh, so what are they? Are they some um, small um, human being, uh, like a primitive race of human beings? Are they angels? Are they more physical than spirit? What? They're probably... There's probably no single explanation to account for all fairies, but most descriptions of them describe them as like small people. They don't look quite like humans. There's something a little different about them. Sometimes they've got some sort of a hybrid look to them, like they might have a part animal characteristics to them. But uh, they are small in stature, and uh, they're usually invisible. Now, other fairies are described as like balls of light, pillars of light. Some of them are described with wings. The Victorians were very fond of drawing fairies with wings, and that's where a lot of people today get their ideas from, that fairies are these little winged things like Tinkerbell, when in fact uh, they really run a gamut of shapes and sizes. I believe, uh, after examining a lot of mythologies and, and origin stories about fairies from different cultures around the world, that... Uh, they once existed in our physical reality. Uh, they are beings, and they're not completely physical like we are, 
but they uh, have the ability to shapeshift. They have uh, powers that we don't. And now they live primarily in their own dimension, but it is still attached to the earth. Uh, the Christians, uh, in, when uh, the Christianization took over uh, pagan uh, mythology and folklore, uh, a lot of gods and goddesses and nature spirits were demonized. And so fairies were associated with witchcraft. They were said to be the, the souls of the unbaptized dead who had to exist in a limbo. And uh, or they were fallen angels, and uh, I think that these are largely demonization kinds of explanations uh, that really don't accurately describe fairies. Yeah, they've, they've also been described, uh, as you point out in your book, uh, as the souls of the pagan dead, which again would, would tend to suggest that they are more spirit than, than physical. Um, now, you um, have written extensively about, you know, and, and you, I believe you lecture on this too, about how to how someone can actually see a fairy. Because the interesting thing about fairies is they'll only become visible if they wish to be seen. Now, how does that work? That folklore is very strong around the world, that fairies have the ability to be seen. And most of the time, according to lore, they really don't want to be seen. And most of them don't want to have a whole lot of interaction with people. Uh, and there are stories from the lore where people have accidentally stumbled upon fairies out in nature world, and they're working or enjoying themselves. And if the fairies notice <clears throat> that they've been seen, some, sometimes they get angry. And there are stories of people having been struck blind in retaliation. But if they choose, they can make themselves visible to people. And if they take a shine to people, if they like people, uh, then, uh, then they manifest. They're very interested in children. And I think this is one reason why children have so many fairy experiences. And I had them, too, when I was a kid. You know, they're usually like the invisible playmates that uh, you can see when you're a kid and you feel that they're very real, but no one else does, especially adults. And I've collected stories of, um, uh, from parents who, uh, whose children talk about their invisible playmates even coming into the house, keeping them company at night. Uh, and as they get older, then um, this gradually goes away, and it's all chalked up to imagination by adults. But I don't think it is. What other purpose do they serve? I mean, what what are, what are their what do they go about doing on a day to day basis? Do they attach themselves to certain homes? Do they attach themselves to certain objects in the home? Uh, do they see themselves as sort of the caretakers of the of the world? Most of them seem to be found out in the world of nature, and uh, sometimes they're tending nature, taking care of it, or just frolicking and amusing themselves. They have areas. Uh, that are distinctly theirs. And uh, there are uh, beliefs in fairy mythologies around the world that um, fairies have their strongholds and the savvy person should know where they are and not trespass on them and definitely uh, not disturb them or cut the trees down or things like that. Uh, they do come into households. There are types of fairies that uh, like to be around people, and they, they will live in a house and, uh, according to lore, even help out with chores. I've had, um, <coughs> I had a case of a, a fairy who lived in uh, a house that I was uh, once lived in in Maryland. He never helped out with anything, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was there nonetheless. 
And uh, typical male fairy, I'm guessing a typical male fairy. <laughs> <laughs> but they they do like their offerings of food, and they like sweet things. Uh, this is very strong in fairy lore. I do believe that uh, in you know times change, and uh, people's attitudes and relationships with the world change, and whatnot. And I do believe that there are many fairies now who are very interested in having. Uh, harmonious relationships with people. Uh, we have these wonderful gardens uh, around the world like Findhorn and Greenhope, Paralandra, where people say that they're working very closely with the nature kingdom, including fairies, to enhance uh, natural growth. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest, paranormal investigator. She joins us the second Sunday of every month here on The Conspiracy Show. Her website is visionaryliving.com. Rosemary, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll talk to, uh, talk to you about how, if people so desire, they can see a fairy. And we'll talk about some of your personal encounters with the fairy world. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You think not getting caught in a lie is the same thing as telling the truth? No. It's simple economics. Today it's oil, right? In 10 or 15 years, food, plutonium. Now what do you think the people are going to want us to do then? Ask them when they're running out. Ask them when there's no heat in their homes and they're cold. Ask them when their engines stop. Ask them when people who've never known hunger start going hungry. You want to know something? They won't want us to ask them. They'll just want us to get it for them. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario. 1-866-740-4740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, paranormal investigator and the author of Fairies. Rosemary, when did that book come out? That came out in 2010. And uh, it's my second book on fairies. It's an introduction to fairies and what their origins are, how their um, uh, activities uh, are, are done in the world and uh, also how people can encounter fairies, communicate with fairies, and see fairies. There's a tremendous interest in um, making contact with the fairy realm. Fairies have fascinated us. So what is the best way to, to, if you want to catch a glimpse of a fairy, how do you do that? You can actually cultivate fairy sight. The best times to see them are outdoors at dusk and at dawn. 
And uh, what, what you can do is you can go outside anywhere to your own backyard or out in the neighborhood or to a park and sit quietly and meditate a bit and, and ask for the fairies that are around you to make themselves known to you. And people experience them in different ways. They may actually see fairies. They may have an impression of fairies on the inner eye, have a mental picture. They may hear something, uh, an inner voice, uh, or sometimes just sense a presence, or it might be a combination of all of those things. And it's a good idea to to be respectful, to uh, to say that uh, you know you're interested in uh, learning about fairies and knowing more about them, and you would like to experience them. Uh, sometimes it might take a little while. Uh, you might have to do this repeatedly, but um, you can tune in. And do you have yep. are any psychic gifts required in order to perceive them? Everybody has their own psychic and intuitive ability and there are people who are more naturally gifted they're going to have an easier time doing it but uh, it's easy to cultivate and one good way to enhance that ability is to use averted vision you're more likely to see something out of the corner of your eye or off to the side rather than looking directly at it so it's sort of sort of like looking through a telescope at a very faint object now, so you you, um, you have to av- avert your eyes and hope that what? You, you're looking with your inner eye? That's the idea? Uh, it's a combination of things. Uh, you avert your vision. That is, um, a, g- a good way to do that is to uh, look ahead, uh, but kind of have your eyes unfocused, that um, you're aware of what's going on on the side of your vision, but you're not turning your eyes to look to the side if something pops into view on the side. That's averted vision. And you might actually see something with, with your eyes. Uh, more likely, you're going to have a mental impression. And that's quite often how I perceive fairies. I see them clairvoyantly with the inner eye rather than, than with my eyes, but I have seen them both ways. And uh, what's the best time of day? Is it uh, dusk, dawn? My favorite time is dusk. Uh, Dawn is also good. Um, If you're a morning person, that's a wonderful time uh, to try and tune into fairies. But dusk, uh, there's something about that changeover between sunlight and nighttime that uh, enhances uh, one's ability to see things that are normally invisible. Well, tell me about the the encounter with this this fairy who looked like a small person. Where were you, and, and how did this come about? Well, one of those encounters was in England, and uh, I was um, uh, doing some vacation traveling over there with a friend of mine, and we went to the ruins of a Roman dream temple very near the, the Welsh border. We had the whole place to ourselves. It was lovely. Uh, it was a sunny day. Um, we were in a nature setting, and uh, just the two of us. And uh, I sat down by myself on a log to meditate for a while, and I was in front of a big oak tree, and I just wanted to tune into the space around me and uh, see if there were any presences who wanted to make themselves known. And suddenly I became aware that there was this, what appeared to be a small man uh, who uh, it, it looked like he just rose up out of the ground by the roots of the tree. And 
he looked like, uh, you know, a little fellow from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, one of those uh, kinds of creatures, and had on trousers and a plaid shirt and a little cap. Uh, and uh, he stood there looking at me like he was curious about me. And, um, and I felt that he had allowed himself to be seen. Uh, so I mentally sent him a greeting, and he acknowledged that and popped back down into the ground. Is that normally how they communicate telepathically? Uh, I, I do believe it is. And most of my communication that I have had uh, with fairies has come that way. It's uh, You can hear a voice uh, in your head or you feel words impressed un- into your thoughts. Uh, it's um, not likely that you're actually going to hear a disembodied voice. Uh, it sounds also as if the uh, fairies, these entities, they they like to be appreciated. How do you how do you show appreciation after you've been allowed, I guess, to see a fairy? Fairies love gifts, and it can be something very simple. It could be a flower, for example, left in a spot where you had an encounter with a fairy. Fairies in the home like little gifts of food. In fact, in folklore, uh, there are a lot of beliefs in various cultures about leaving food for the fairies. And if you're preparing food and anything accidentally falls on the floor, it's automatically the fairies. And uh, nobody is supposed to eat it. Do fairies actually take the food away? Well, probably not. I've never had that happen or encountered any stories like that. But they take the essence of it. And so it is said in folklore that once you have left something for the fairies and they've made their meal out of it, uh, the food is not to be eaten by uh, humans or animals uh, because the fairies have taken all the uh, nutritional value out of the food. Uh, They like sweet things. Uh, There are very strong um, beliefs that fairies get offended by money. And even though they like shiny things, don't leave them money because uh, they feel like they're being bought and um, uh, they will um, feel very insulted by that. I don't know if I'm mixing up fairies with gremlins, but or maybe you know there, there's sort of the same underlying <clears throat> entity that explains both phenomena. But uh, you know, people often complain about something going on the fritz suddenly with no explanation, or they and they blame a gremlin, or something is missing. It was right there, you know, two minutes ago. I averted my gaze, and now it's gone. Uh, are fairies associated with? Uh, I guess throwing a monkey wrench into the into the machine, or or with missing items. They certainly are. Uh, They do do poltergeist things, like um, some other kinds of entities, too. They will take objects and hide them, move them around. It's said in folklore that if you don't keep a clean house and you have uh, fairies living in the house, they'll get very upset by that, and instead of uh, cleaning things up, they will actually make things more chaotic and messy. So um, a lot of those things can be blamed on the fairies. And sometimes, you know, we might not even know exactly who might be responsible for those missing objects if we can't blame ourselves, if it's the fairies or some other kind of spirit. But um, a gremlin-like personality is very characteristic of a lot of them. We were earlier talking about communication and how a fairy communicates. Um, we also associate fairies with, with music. Have you ever uh, been privileged, I guess, to hear fairy music? On one occasion, yes, I did. In fact, 
fairies are famous for music, and when people have accidentally come upon them in the world of nature, they're often singing and dancing at night, making merry. I was in Findhorn uh, a number of years ago. I went out for the summer solstice, and I wanted to see the gardens there that uh, people said uh, they had grown, you know, amazing produce with the help of the nature spirits, which would include fairies. I took a walk to the beach one day all by myself, and um, it was a long trek, and you go through these very narrow pathways through thick um, uh, brush and, um, you know, very tall brambles and things like that. And I heard these panpipes uh, behind me, but every time I turned around, uh, there was nobody there. And it, it sounded like, um, you know, someone was following me playing the pipes. And I eventually came out on the beach, and no one came out behind me. Um, and I was very puzzled by that. If if someone had, um, you know, maybe been behind me and turned around, well, when I related that to people at at Findhorn, they said, "Oh yes, well, you you had an experience with Pan because that's what he does. If he likes you, he'll follow you somewhere, and uh, play the Pan pipes." And I distinctly heard them. Uh, it was not an inner hearing. It was something that I heard with my uh, my normal ears. Now, when I think of Pan, I think of some sort of uh, uh, like a wood nymph or, or something like that. Are they, so Pan it would be considered part of the fairy realm? There's a blurring of boundaries between uh, hybrid creatures and demigods and nature spirits and fairies. And sometimes it's impossible to say where one leaves off and the other starts. They all kind of get mixed together. But Pan is the uh, the lord of the woodlands and um, would have at least a relationship with fairies. Um, who live out in the natural world. Is it possible for humans and fairies to, um, uh, to reproduce? Uh, I mean, can they mate? In lore, yes. And in fact, all around the globe, going back to ancient times, there are stories and traditions and beliefs about intermingling between humans and fairies. Um, the fairies have an intense interest in human beings, and, and um, there are traditions for fairy wives, fairy husbands, and um, stories exist that um, the, the fairy spouse must be taken very good care of. Uh, and as long as they're happy, all kinds of favors and bounty and blessings come to the humans. And if they become unhappy, then they vanish, and all of their um, things that they have created for for the human spouse all vanish too. You know, we 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 were very much attuned to sort of the fairy world up until, I would say, uh, you know, the, again the early early twentieth century, and and we were talking about that earlier, uh, sort of the tail end of the Victorian era, uh, and then you know, speed ahead thirty forty years, and all of a sudden, uh, everyone was seeing little green men. Uh, and now today, uh, some people still claim to see, you know, the greys. Other people talk about shadow people. You and I have talked a number of times about shadow people. Do you think all of these entities are, I mean, there's one entity that can explain all of these phenomena? There very uh, well might be, Richard. Uh, in fact, um, even going back into the 60s and 70s, ufologists, in collecting accounts of encounters with space beings, uh, realized that they were very similar, if not in some cases identical, to accounts 
uh, earlier accounts of encounters with fairies, even the descriptions of them, very similar. And uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, back in around the turn of the century, uh, he, he was very interested in fairies and collected a lot of Irish fairy stories. He said that fairies take whatever form we can perceive them in. And that does seem to be the case in looking at our encounters with all kinds of entities that um, we explain them and, and even see them uh, according to what we can make sense out of. So is there like one being behind all of them? I think a good case can be made that the jinn are at least uh, responsible for some of our encounters, that they have taken uh, different forms throughout the ages, uh, to conform to human uh, cultural expectations and beliefs and also what people can accommodate. Interestingly, ancient Arabian and Persian fairy lore is very intermingled with jinn lore, and they too are a supernatural race that preceded human beings on the planet who uh, now exist in uh, another dimension but still attached to the earth. Well, Rosemary, thanks for giving us the lowdown on fairies. Thank you for this. Thank you very much, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Is it safe? I don't know what you mean. I can't tell you if something is safe or not. Unless I know specifically what you're talking about. Is it safe? Tell me what the it refers to. Is it safe? Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. It's so safe you wouldn't believe it. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. It's very dangerous. Be careful. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hey, friends. So the last half hour of the program is pretty much all yours. It's you, me, and the telephones, and now you have the number, so get in, uh, get in, get in early. We've got, we've got about 20 minutes uh, left in the program, and uh, we can discuss just about anything you'd like, as long of course, as long as long of of course, as it um, it falls sort of within the uh, the format of the program, and and uh, we talk about conspiracies and geopolitics and the paranormal and UFOs and so forth. Now, um, let me just give you a heads up what's coming up next week on the program. This is a fellow I met out in uh, in Los Angeles back in um, I guess it was September when I went out there uh, filming episodes for the uh, the conspiracy show television program season three coming soon. Uh, Jim Diogenio, and uh, he's got a brand new book out called Destiny Betrayed. Just when you think you've heard or you know everything about the JFK assassination, along comes uh, this book, and it's just going to blow your mind. I hope you can get a hold of it and read it, but uh, Jim will be on the program next week. Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Uh, So I hope you'll be along uh, for that one. I got some disturbing news. Uh... Earlier this week, Wednesday, in fact, I received an email from someone out on the West Coast who emailed me a link to 
a newspaper uh, called the Santa Barbara View. And when I opened up the link and read the story, I was shocked, stunned, really. There's a gentleman I, I, um, I had on the radio program back maybe February, March, just after he, uh, he had published a new book. It was called Bamboozled, The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Phil Marshall, former airline, uh, commercial airline pilot, also, he said, flew for the CIA and the DEA during uh, Iran-Contra. Wrote a book about that as well. So I met him in September in California, in, uh, in uh, Santa Monica, and uh, we chatted about uh, the big bamboozle. Prior to that, I'd had him on the radio show. Had him on again. I'm sorry, I met him in August in Santa Monica. September 9th, two days before the, the um, I guess it would have been the 10th anniversary, 11th anniversary, sorry, I had him on the program again. And uh, then subsequent to that, we emailed back and forth a few times. He wanted to know what's the status of the TV show because he was he was going to be or he's going to be in our episode on uh, 9-11 foreknowledge, evidence for foreknowledge. And I said, well, we, you know, we, we, uh, we had some delays, but it's, it's, it's on track. It's going to be it's going to be on in the fall. And, we'll, we'll, you know, that's all I can say right now. And he said, OK, well, let's keep in touch. So then I get this email on Wednesday, an article in the Santa Barbara View. And here's what it said. Former airline pilot Phil Marshall spent a great deal of time around Santa Barbara last year preparing for the release of his controversial 9-11 conspiracy book, The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. During the editing and pre-marketing process of Marshall's book, he expressed some degree of paranoia because the nonfiction work accused the George W. Bush administration of being in cahoots with the Saudi intelligence community and training the hijackers who died in the planes used in the attacks. Think about this, Marshall said last year in a written statement. The official version about some ghost, Osama bin Laden, in some cave on the other side of the world, defeating our entire military establishment on U.S. soil is absolutely preposterous. Marshall went on to say the true reason the attack was successful is because of an inside military stand-down and a coordinated training uh, operation that prepared the hijackers to fly heavy commercial airliners. We have dozens of FBI documents to prove this flight training was conducted uh, in California, Florida, Arizona in the 18 months leading up to the attack. The veteran pilot confided that he was concerned about his 10-year independent 9-11 study. He, he echoed that same sentiment to me. And most recent book uh, was concerned about his most recent book since they pointed to the Saudis and the Bush intelligence community as the executioners of the attack that defeated all U.S. military defenses on September 11th, 2001. Marshall said he knew his book might cause some people to take issue with him. Then we find out that on February 6th, Phil Marshall and his two children were found dead in their home. Allegedly, Philip Marshall shot and killed both of his teenage children. They were asleep at the time, apparently. They were both shot in the head. He shot the family dog. And then he turned the weapon on himself. Phil Marshall, dead of apparent murder, suicide. So having uh, met, met Philip, uh, having talked with him at length in Santa Monica, several hours, on this radio program two times, and uh, emailed back and forth a number of times, uh, I can't say that I know the man or knew the man. 
But I have to tell you, it just, it seems rare, very strange. And uh, at the risk of being accused of being a conspiracy theorist, which I suppose in some, to some extent I am, uh, I think there's something fishy here. What better way to discredit somebody and getting rid of them at the same time uh, than to have him labeled as uh, a murderer? Of course, now he's not around to defend himself. I'm not sure if we'll ever get to the bottom of this, but uh, we'll talk more. And uh, take your calls after the break. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back once again. 9-11 researcher Philip Marshall, who last appeared on this program on September 9th, 2012, uh, dead. Uh, what authorities are calling a murder-suicide. Uh, he uh, supposedly killed himself, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Not a, a gunshot wound, I'm sorry. I, I believe it was a 9mm handgun, which, according to reports, he'd been showing to friends about a week ago. Uh, prior to that, however, he allegedly shot and killed his two teenage children. A horrible, horrible, horrible um, tragedy. And again, having met Philip several times on the phone, on the radio program, meeting him in person, several emails back and forth since September. I can't say that I know him. I just, I, I, I don't think it adds up. Of course, you never know somebody, really. Uh, but he just never struck me as being in any way unstable or angry, although he did indicate, you know, he had some concerns about his his safety after writing this book, The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, in which he implicates Saudi um, intelligence and certain individuals inside the Bush administration for coordinating the 9-11 attacks. And, of course, some are saying, and, and I have to echo sentiment it's it, it seems strange and, and, and what better way to discredit somebody than than to hang the uh, the uh, the label of um, murder on them taking the lives of his own children beautiful beautiful children Michaela was 14 Alex her brother 17 I've got a picture of them uh, of them up on my website at richardserrett.com and incidentally next week in the second hour of the show I'm going to play the interview that I um, conducted with Phil Marshall on September 9th, 2012, in its entirety. Hope you'll be along for that. All right, to the phones we go, and uh, Cecil is in upstate New York. Cecil, or uh, Cecil, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? uh, I'm just fine. Um, We like your program very much. Um, I've got two things. One is... um, in your searches through your uh, Russian, or, or uh, rather, Greek Orthodox uh, heritage um, uh, about reincarnation, I would suggest taking a look at the works of Origen, uh, who was one of the Church Fathers, because he he wrote uh, some things on the subject, and this is before the the Council that uh, uh, something like 325 A.D. that uh, that sort of codified the uh, the theological views. 
I, that, I, I appreciate that information uh, because, Cecil, as you know, I've stated publicly on the program that uh, while I'm, I'm certainly open to the experience, having witnessed a number of past life regressions, I, I can't reconcile that with my, my faith uh, because sort of the official doctrine is that their, you know, reincarnation doesn't, uh, it doesn't square with the faith, reincarnation. Right, but if, if uh, one of the church fa- fathers uh, uh, took it seriously, then maybe... Uh, there's maybe it deserves a second look. I appreciate that. Now, what's what was the the, the church father's name again? Can I get that again? Uh, Origen, O R I G E N. I'm going to look that up. Cecil, he thank you for that. He was writing in Greek at the time. All right. Um, uh, the question is, uh, I heard on on kind of a a, a radio teaser on uh, probably uh, uh, Big Band Sunday. Um, Information saying essentially Canada had been set up as a corporation on uh, on the stock exchange. Uh, Canada uh, Canada Inc. is or Canada the country of Canada is listed on the Securities Exchange Commission the SEC. If you go on the website and uh, right I think above uh, Canada Dry Limited, of course, the soft drink manufacturer, Canadian company. Uh, is Canada, the country. Uh-huh. And they list the, the corporate headquarters uh, being... Uh, it's on Pennsylvania Avenue, where it's housed inside the Canadian uh, embassy in Washington. They list the legal counsel and, and, and so forth. So that has led some to suggest that Canada is, in fact, a corporation and not not a nation-state, if you will. Uh-huh. I mean, and it's true. I have looked it up, uh, and I've yet to hear... Um, an answer uh, as to why Canada would be listed on the SEC. Uh, I don't know. Can you shed any lights? I, uh, no, but I, I I do ask questions, and uh, and uh, I hope you'll continue to inquire about it because uh, there must be some legal explanation of of what it's what it's there doing, and who's who who are the shareholders, and what are or. You know what? What exactly are they doing with your uh, your country's name as a trademark? And just like, what are the legal implications of it? Well, exactly. If we are a corporation, then we are not uh, we are not citizens. We are chattel, like office furniture. We are yes. we are property, and uh, the the uh, you know the law of the land, or the the let's say for example the the uh, the, the Constitution, the Canadian Constitution, formerly the BNA Act, is nothing, or the BN, the British North America Act, is nothing more than a commercial document. So uh-huh. the implications are huge if in fact it's true, Cecil. But and I've done shows on it in the past, and I'll and I'll uh, uh, I, I appreciate you you reminding me. I'll, we'll do another one on it. Well, thank you. Great to hear from you in upstate New York. We love you. Thank you, Cecil. Bye. All right, let's say hello next to, uh, we've got Dave. Dave, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, is that uh, Richard? It's it's Richard, indeed. Oh, I had a lot of static there. I thought I might have lost you. Hey, uh, good to talk to you again. Um, I had some questions uh, about uh, Eleanor White to see, but before you did that, I um, I missed the first five minutes of the show, and I uh, was surprised to see Sean David Morton uh, back on after last week. He couldn't make it. Did he explain what happened? Yeah, he had an emergency. Um, with a client, 
and uh, he ducked out of the. He was very apologetic, and uh, but you know what? Uh, it's live radio, and I ended up having a great hour of uh, of open lines with with people. So I, you know what? Uh, after twenty years in the business, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't yeah, bother me. So because no, I was wondering, because I used to listen to him on uh, Coast to Coast all the time mm-hmm. with Art, and I think he was only on once with uh, George, and I haven't heard him back since. I tried to contact him in '08, left some messages, and never heard from him. So I was wondering uh, if this was another nefarious uh, thing that happened to him that he couldn't make. No, he just, um, you know, just one of those rare instances when it, where a guest, uh, you know, isn't where he's supposed to be. But uh, we soldiered on, and, and it was great uh, talking to him. It probably wasn't coincidence, but it was good to hear him on tonight. Anyway, what I wanted to ask you about was um, uh, Eleanor White that uh, you had mentioned to me uh, a long time ago when you hosted uh, Coast to Coast there that one time. That uh, how um, Do you have anything ar- archived that uh, I would be able to listen to of those programs? Uh, boy, we're going back. I, I don't think Eleanor has been with me uh, since I've been over here uh, at this particular station, here at our flagship station, AM740 in Toronto. Oh, okay. uh, I'd have to go back quite a few years. I would. You might find something online. It's hard to say. Yeah, I have um, found some stuff uh, that, that she's done, but nothing that uh, she might have discussed on your show. Well, or, uh, you know, uh, if you... She was if never you, on uh, the show you got right now. No, but. if you Google Eleanor online, uh, those uh, who are um, not familiar with Eleanor, White's work. She's very active in uh, the field of electronic harassment or helping victims uh, who, who feel they are being targeted for electronic harassment. Eleanor herself believes that she's been a lifelong victim um, for harassment. So uh, the best thing I would say is is Google her online, and yeah. uh, because her website is, is not at the tip of my on the tip of my tongue, and she may have uh, she may have archived one of my shows. Maybe uh, uh, you know. Maybe there's an MP3 of one of my old shows on her site. Well, her what she talks about actually may tie in. Uh, you said it was Philip Marshall, right? Who just uh, who just died? Yes. Yeah. Now, what it, you never know these days. From what I've investigated as a TI myself, a targeted individual, is that it's flipped the coin on whether it uh, he could have been bumped off because of what he was trying to expose. But the, the other aspect of it is what I call I call it STOP, an acronym for Strategic Targeting of Persons. It's uh, gang stalking. It's also referred to. But the way they go after you, they may have put so much pressure on him that he figured the only way out of this was to do what he did. But like I say, it's flipped the coin. You just don't know whether uh, he did it because he was pressured or whether they bumped him off and they're blaming him. Uh, yeah, we'll probably never know. I, I believe, uh, you know, the authorities um, at his home near Santa Barbara are conducting, you know, toxicology. They want to find out whether the children were drugged and uh, they were supposedly... Uh, asleep when they were uh, so I not that that's much comfort but at least yeah, you know it, um, okay yeah. one quick question before I go is how did you get on to C2C it was great to hear you there I'm glad I picked you up uh, from the show to be able to tune into your program here but how did it come about that you got to uh, host seat at the coast to coast just got a call from uh, the um, uh, I guess he was the vice president of uh, of talk at uh, Premier Radio Networks and uh, you know it was a great honor got it felt like being called up to the Yankees and uh, George happened to be off on a Friday I guess he was I believe he was celebrating his daughter's his daughter's birthday so you do a great job Richard you're one of the best I've listened to other than George Knapp on the host on coast to coast I mean you do a fantastic job I appreciate it Dave every week thank you my friend you're welcome good talking good to one. you all right Bye-bye. Something else I want to uh, talk to you about. And, uh, you know, this is something that I've mentioned on this program 
months and months and months ago, maybe even more than a year ago, and others, of course, in this field have talked about it as well. And now it's just sort of percolating into the mainstream media, and you've probably known about this for some time too, but uh, these I'm talking about these recently uncovered memos from the uh, Justice Department in the U.S., a white paper, which is arguing that the government now has the right to kill any American citizen the government believes is affiliated with a terrorist organization. And I uh, found a wonderful um, uh, article here. There's a, um, a news, an, an e-newsletter that I subscribe to called Wealth Daily. And the uh, article is written by Jeff Siegel. And uh, he describes, uh, or he asks, you know, how, ask yourself, how is this legal? But first, let this soak in for a moment. Say it out loud. The government now has the right to kill any American citizen the government believes is affiliated with a terrorist organization. According to attorney uh, Jamil Jaffer, some of the white paper's key legal arguments don't stand up to even cursory review as it emits crucial language from Matthew v. Eldridge, a case in which the Supreme Court held that the question of what, pro, uh, what process must be afforded to a person before he's deprived of life or liberty must take into account the risk of erroneous deprivation of such interests through procedures used and the value of additional procedural safeguards. These are, these are safeguards all outlined in the Fifth Amendment, right? Due process. Jaffer went on to say, this is a chilling document. Basically, it argues the government has the right to carry out the extrajudicial killing of Americans. It recognizes some limits on the authority it sets out, but the limits are elastic and vaguely defined, and it's easy to see how they could be manipulated. In fact, I've heard uh, uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano uh, say that after looking at the 16-page white paper, it is so vague it would allow the president to sign off in, on killing a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. Of course, now they're using drone, drones uh, in places like Pakistan and, and Yemen and so forth. But the document is so vague, we could see U.S. citizens targeted on U.S. soil for assassination, execution. Imagine the president, the president having the power uh, to, to be judge, jury, and executioner. This is a power that is normally found with kings, dictators. This to me is beyond concerning as some uh, uh, people at CNN and others have described it. It's not concerning. It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. But even more shocking is you have to start asking yourself, are you a terrorist? Could you end up on that list? Could I end up on that list? You never know. You think, think I'm kidding, writes Jeffrey Siegel at Wealth Daily. Let's review how some lawmakers have already defined Americans as terrorists. August 2011, Vice President Joe Biden equates Tea Party supporters with terrorists. August, 20, uh, August 2011, Justice Department and FBI identify those having more than a seven-day supply of stored food as being potential terrorist threats. January 2011, Department of Homeland Security suggests those who pay cash for a hotel room might be terrorists. March 2009, law enforcement report from the Missouri Information Analysis Center labels Ron Paul supporters, libertarians, and people sharing movies about the Federal Reserve as domestic terrorists. All right, back next week, we'll replay the Phil Marshall interview, the late Phil Marshall interview from September 2012, and Jim DiEugenio on Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison case. Tim Spreen, thank you. Thank you all for listening. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. 
what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.